Okay, and we're live. Uh, welcome everybody to episode 12 of the Redesign Girl podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ritwich Gautam, and I'm joined by my co-host and co-founder, Timothy Rotolo. Um, I'm excited for this episode because uh, I've uh, the guest that we have on today is obsessed with product. Uh, we have that in common. Uh, and, and we're doing something different. We're all, we're, we're, we're standing up today. Uh, so please welcome on the podcast, uh, our guest for today, John. So John, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, uh, John, before, before I get started, I always think it's, uh, my guests do a better job at introducing themselves than I do. So, uh, I think it'd be useful just, just for some context setting to let, let, let the people know, uh, who you are, what do you have going on? Uh, and uh, how how'd you get into product and what do you do now? Awesome. So uh, my name's John Falushko. I've been a product manager for 15 years, uh, starting out in hard goods. So I've uh, started out uh, working on a, a big outdoor brand that everybody's heard of, uh, running their military division and building product for commandos, uh, working on operations all over the world at the height of the global war on terror. And uh, that was my first my first real job. Wow. Uh, yeah, walked in off, off retail for having worked retail, and they were like, hey, we got a business division that's not doing so well. Uh, everybody else has quit. You're the sole employee. Uh, we just want a major contract. Take it over. Wow. And so uh, from that, I've been at uh, four or five companies and then consulted for a bunch more as the sole or first product manager mm -hmm. uh, at all of those roles. So. I have no experience working in product teams. I have no experience working uh, like in pre-existing product organizations. All my experience is we heard there's this discipline called product. We need it. How do you do it? And uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. That's awesome. So I think I think you know perspective wise that's that's super valuable because the ability to the ability to show up and build a product process or or like establish a product practice from scratch is is unique like not everybody gets to do that usually you show up and there's something something already in place and and when there's something already in place the inertia is pretty high right to, to, to like make changes and if you're making changes it's like refinement or incremental as opposed to building from scratch so i what i would love to know is as you've built product practices from scratch at all these different places right is there is there a common thread that you found about like hey this is what people get wrong about product and this is what people get wrong consistently and yeah. uh yeah and, and could you tell us a bit about that sure so the thing i find is people think product is for customers mm -hmm. and they talk about customer obsessed and customer problems and we're going to build what the customer needs and that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what product is. Product solves business problems. Solving the customer's problem is only one small subset of the business's problem. And when we, I hear product managers talk about all the time having conflict with stakeholders. And I'm like, okay, yep, I get it, I've been there. But that's because the product managers see that the, they think that the customer is somehow different than the stakeholder. The stakeholder is the customer. They're the primary customer. 
So when I write a product brief, there's two sections, business problems and customer problems. Mm -hmm. And the product has to solve both of those to be viable right? in my world. And so you get into businesses and you start talking to people like the very first place I started working. And it's like the real problem here is the customers, the end customers love the product, but the entire company's lost faith in, faith in this business unit. Okay. Okay. Cool. I need to build a product line that rebuilds the faith of those people in the business unit. Right. The, the, the customer's buying it, the revenue coming in, that's only a tiny subset. It has to do it in a way that, that the rest of the company feels great about, feels awesome about, the investors feel awesome about, the management feels awesome about, the, the talent, the designers feel awesome about, the engineers feel great about. Mm-hmm. All of those people are your stakeholders and have to be served in a product process. So that's kind of my first big distinction between right. the way your product talked about a lot and what I find myself actually doing on my job. Got it. So I is it so is it the focus, right? Like you 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 said this thing that's really that really stuck out to me, which is like a stakeholder is the customer, right? Yeah. And and is it would it be right fair to make the distinction that uh, the the customer is served by the product, but the stakeholder is served by the product plus the process, like the product process. The right. Product, yeah. Yeah. The product process and also the outcomes, right? Right. When I'm um, building product now, I've learned to be like, okay, what are the outcomes? What's this is an experiment. What's my hypothesis? Right. What are the outcomes? And it's like, oh, I want to change this aspect of customer behavior or this survey result, you know, customer trust or whatever. Right. I'm also trying to achieve this delta in margin dollars, this change in NRR, right. this change in revenue. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And making that super explicit all the way through the process. That that makes sense. Um, I so I think I think that that actually segues really well into what like the the meat of this podcast is right. Like we call it redesign growth because we there's this there's this notion right that building better product results in better growth or at least like building good yeah. product results in good growth and and there's this notion of it and no one no one will push back on that right like no nobody yeah. pushes back on that as a concept but when you actually try to implement right people get lost in the weeds people still build shitty products all the time right yeah. and it's not it's not because they want to build shitty products but people kind of get lost in the weeds so for you like what do you view how or rather how do you view the relationship between product and growth and what does it mean to build like or, or to do product-led growth outside of like the typical plg motion like that we would talk about on like you know a u like a use case basis but uh what does it mean for to build product that drives growth to you so it means being really really intentional about mm-hmm. what growth matters to you and so i think product managers need to understand like Everywhere I've been, my best friend has been the CFO, Hmm. right? I'm living in the CFO and I are aligned. We are aligned on the financial goals of the company. We are aligned on how much risk and I try and make risk really, really, really explicit. Like do most product managers, when I talk to them, you know, places like front and other conferences, they can't explicitly make clear the risk tolerance of their management. 
right? The payoff period, the ROI. Okay, mm -hmm. if you give me a million bucks for this project, how soon do you need to see return on investment on this? And right. I've never worked for a VC funded place. I've worked for Fortune 500s. I've worked for individual partnerships. I've worked for sole owners. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're always very concerned about, hey, how quickly is this gonna pay back? Um, and so I'm always talking about that. What the level, and that really helps you narrow down. The problem I have, and I don't know if it's the same for every product manager, but the problem I have is there are too many things we could do. Right, like the blue sky is, is like infinite and you can do whatever you want, really. Right, and so how I narrow that down is by being really, really clear on the goals of the company, the financial goals, and then the emotional goals of leadership. Mm -hmm. How do the leaders wanna feel? Right. What are their emotional priorities? What are their personal needs? You know, I worked for a guy who literally just wanted his most important goal was to never lose control of his company. So I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> Let me help you achieve that. I worked for another guy who like, by the time I'm 35, I want to be independently wealthy and own a sailboat and nothing after that matters. Right. I worked for a fortune 500 where the directors were like, I don't care what you do as long as it doesn't harm the value of my next stock stack option in 90 days. Got right. It. Yeah. And so really, really knowing those helps you narrow down what product, what options you're going to take. So it, it, a lot of this sounds like it's like managing up and understanding expectations, uh, both spoken and unspoken or like getting yes. the unspoken expectations to be spoken. Yes. Right. Uh, before you before you get down in the weeds and start doing product work and writing PRDs and writing briefs. Right. Like it's uh, it, it, I feel success, like. Right. Yeah. What is success for that product? And so I have success criteria is one of my things on every PRD. Mm -hmm. What are the success criteria for this product? And I want those to as closely I tell the story. How do those closely align with with what is success for each important stakeholder? Right. That's, I mean, I think, I think not enough people do that, right? Like it's to, to define product success, right? To, at least before you measure product success, you need to define it. Yes. Right. And, and I think, I think product success definition is it, it I think what the point you're making is it's, it's as subjective as anything else, right? Like yeah. you think at least as like a for, like a for-profit company, like, Hey, the, the outcome of better product or, or what I, for us, we define success as revenue and, and like new users, right? Like it's, right. these are like the two metrics that yep. we use to index success at our own company. Uh, but, but the fact that that might not necessarily be the case across the board brings up something interesting. So how do you, how do you then like build now that you've, once you establish like, Hey, this is, this is what it means for this product to succeed. How do you, how do you go about building a product success uh, or like a product framework with that as the north star, right? With revenue as the north star, I get it. But how do you how do you do it when it the north star is uh, is like I don't want to lose control, right? right. Yeah. Th then you're like, okay, let's war game the things you're afraid of. People don't chase. And this is you know I'm a political scientist and a historian by education. Okay. Right? People chase goals. They avoid their fears. Right. And so yeah. those management goals are great. But what you're really trying to get is, is what are the red lines you don't want to cross? What are you most afraid of? 
And then you build products that minimize those risks. Right? So if my customer, if my boss's goal is, hey, I don't ever want to lose control of this company, then you're like, awesome. Let's talk specifically about how many dollars you can bet, how many you can put on this roulette wheel called product without losing control of your company. Right. Let's get down to, yeah. Is this like a road mapping exercise? Is that mainly where the- This is these... a free roadmap. This is the very first thing I do when I get to a company is I try and understand two things, the management's goals and then the unit economics. Mm-hmm. How do we make money? What costs us money? What are our risks? Mm-hmm. Right. And clearly this is something that people contend with all the time. Here's a, here's a comment that came in from like our, uh, you know, our, our live stream. Uh, but I think I think something to talk about, and and what I love, by the way, this is a, a, about your LinkedIn profile. Like your your byline is producer of persins- persistently profitable product process, right? Yep. And so, that I, yeah, that's that's awesome. And so when when we talk about like persistently profitable, that uh, it it like at least in a typical use case, that's like underpinning around like revenue. So and I think a lot of uh for for me like my my hill to die on has been. Like, okay, yeah, there's all of these different success metrics, like non-revenue success metrics for product are some things that I like, like it's not something I really contend with on a day-to-day basis, but for me, like profit-driven, like, you know, like profit-driven or uh, uh, or revenue-driven metrics yeah. for success, right? Uh, is something that I, I think a lot of, lot of product people contend with. And there's also like a ton of, mystification and misinformation on that front. So how would you, if, if my goal is to think about, Hey, I want to build a perfect, like a persistently profitable product process. Yeah. How do I do that? So what you're doing is you're, then you're getting, see, then you're diving into the user that's actually paying Mm -hmm. and understanding why do they buy or not buy? So I, I try and get on as many sales calls as I possibly can. Uh, My sales guys know that I am, I am their ultimate backstop. Mm-hmm. They'll call me live in the middle of the day and be like, "Hey, man, I've got a customer who's asking questions I can't answer," and I'm like, "And I'll drop everything I'm doing, walk out of meetings, and get on that call with them." Mm-hmm. I'm constantly, constantly trying. And then we've offered, and I've done this in a couple of jobs. I offer consulting for my customers. So I say, "Hey, if you have a problem in the world that my product is in, mm-hmm. call me, and I will do whatever it takes to help you solve it." Even though my product is only a tiny sliver of that problem, I'm trying to understand their entire journey to value on their side. What is the value chain my product is part of? And that's been everything from like hostage rescue Mm -hmm. (laughs) to computing what software you can get rid of. It really doesn't matter what the value chain is. The process as a product manager is exactly the same. How do I get as close as possible to doing your job, doing your role, understanding what you feel, knowing your tools, so I can understand the hard points in the value chain for you? Right. Right? And it's exactly the same conversation you have with management. What is value to management? What is value to the customer? So how... Where, where do people where do people trip up? Like, where do people mess up when they're doing this? Because it sounds like at least when we talk about it and, and yeah. like, you know, I, I, I would love to believe that we are like an enlightened few, but yeah, I, I feel like the intention is common across people, but like, so people, uh, 
where do they make this assumption that the customer and the owners, the other people are like them. We talk about diversity all the time, Mm -hmm. but we, we like heuristics that are simple and the simplest heuristic is believing that other people have the same values, goals, and constraints that we do. Right. And they do not. The customer is not like you. Your boss is not like you. The CEO is not like you. The investor is not like you. And we always default to assuming that they're the same as us, that they see the world the same as us, that they believe the same as us, that they have decision-making processes the same as ours. Right. And that simple lack of humility and simple lack of realizing what diversity actually means. Mm -hmm. Like when I got to one of the companies I was working for, they're like, oh, we can sell this product around the world. And I went, no, we can't. This custom, this product is about transparency and accountability in government organizations. Most governments around the world do not want transparency and accountability. What do you mean? Transparency and accountability and financial efficiency is the best thing about government. For an American, it's not the case around the world. We don't have a product that works other places. And I've encountered that over and over and over again, these simple assumptions that other people are like you. And almost every failure I see in a product is a result of assuming that you know how other people feel, that you understand their circumstances when you don't. Right. I think I think there's this this no at least for us like uh, we we build and sell like a product analytics and usability testing software. So for us like the the lens through which we're like hey you are not your user or you are not your customer for us it's operational and geared towards UX. Uh, specifically right. like you know building better user experiences but uh there, there's a truth to it across like even even beyond right like to hey you're you're not your investor and you're not your your stakeholder right like yeah so so practically when when people mess up on product is it is it is it remediable by just like hey man just go and talk to the people go and like do some research do some discovery and then come back, like, you know, test your hypotheses and assumptions and then apply that to your product process. Or is it like, is that the only thing that's missing? Or is there, is there this idea of, Hey, even after you do discovery, because people might be like, Hey man, I, I, I talk to my customers all the time. You know, right. I got, like, you know, I got on calls with my customers all the time, or I, I talk to my investor every month or something right. like that. But like, what, why is it like, just, just like, hearing what the other person has to say is not enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So what's what like what's the other piece? So so the questions I like to ask customers and customers are the actually the less useful segment. Okay. That's non- a hot customers. take by the way, John. That's yeah. a hot take. I will say like people people like I'm sure there's people that would just uh would come after you for a take like that. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear what you have to yeah, say. Yeah, so who I'm really interested in opinion are people in my market who aren't my customers. People who know about my customers, have had my value proposition, have had been pitched and don't buy. Why not? Right. And then really even more important are people who leave. Right. So if sure. you're not doing like exit interviews, you're screwing up, right? Because we all know if you're in a SaaS business, if you're in subscription business, NRR matters way more. Net recurring revenue matters way more than new than growth. 
right? Mm -hmm. If you haven't done that math yourself and built those spreadsheets yourself, I highly recommend doing it and, and really feeling those numbers. Right. <laughs> and then going and saying, okay, who's in my target market that's not buying my product and why the heck not? Right. That's, that's a good exercise. I think because uh, because you right, like uh, running a SaaS business, like repeatability and recur the recurring nature of revenue is like the gold standard, right? Like that's why yeah. SaaS businesses get the, or at least used to get the valuations that they used to get. The idea is like, okay, like this thing is a machine. Like it, yeah. it people show up, they stay and they get value over time. But like high churn rates would tell you like, okay, like that, that high churn rates can, can tank the valuation of a SaaS business that's growing rapidly. Because it's, it's, it's really the same in physical product too. You don't measure it yeah. the same way. But most mm -hmm. of your revenue when you make physical product are repeat yeah. customers to your brand. Right. So something like 80% of your revenue in a physical product business are people who are buying multiple items from your brand. Right. That makes right. a lot of sense. Uh, and so, go ahead. So, so is there like, uh, uh, I'm actually, I have a bunch of questions and I, yeah. I love this conversation. So let me, so on the physical product side of things, right. I, how do people how, like, are people sort of measuring, like, is, is there a metric like ARPU? Like, you know, you have like, uh, there's this idea of like revenue per user, yeah. at least nominally in SaaS. What does yeah. that look like uh, for, for like physical products? So it's a little bit harder to tell online. I was there with the, the launch of online sales for, uh -huh. for a couple of big, for a big brand, actually two big brands. Mm -hmm. And that I would have launched online sales as a major brand only for the data. If I didn't make a single dollar off the product I sold, it would have been worth it entirely for the, having, being able to get the data on who my customers were and what their buying habits were. So that's changed, that's changed the world dramatically. Uh, there's right. an awesome use case from North the North Face where they actually build products they lose money on and put them on their website in order to test which features are worth more to customers. Mm -hmm. Almost like a loss leader. Yeah, so they have, uh, they have maybe 20 or 30% of the products on the North Face website. Our products made in such small quantities that they're not profitable. Mm -hmm. But they've got a combination of features that they're testing, like an MVP, to see what, what customers buy on. And that revenue per customer, when I started out in retail and I worked retail for about seven years, I had 10 or 15 customers that were something like me as a sales guy, 30% mm -hmm. of my commission for the year. All right. Who would come in and buy, hey, the new Patagonia came, catalog came out, I'm gonna buy a whole new wardrobe from Patagonia for this fall, 10,000 bucks, 15,000 bucks. And those people represented an outside. So you get those curves, those 80, 20 curves. Uh, have right. you guys read an old book called um, Long Tail? Uh, I, I, I don't believe I have. Okay. Um, it's an awesome book on unit economics and on Amazon's user economics and how a tiny percentage of customers are responsible for the vast majority of revenue in every retail business too. Right. And a tiny percentage of very hard to find, very expensive products, very hard to find products are responsible for a massive percentage of the revenue. So like, yeah, th those principles apply everywhere. 80-20 applies everywhere. You know, in the, the rule in, in product as I learned it is 80% of my products will net at zero and 20% mm -hmm. of my product launches are responsible for all my profit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that 
that gives you a like a general notion of a portfolio, right? Like I have yeah. even 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 with us, right? Like we're like, hey, here's our like highest paying customers, right? Like this is this is like the portion of our portfolio that uh, where if you were to segment it by plan or something, like hey, these guys give us uh, like a lot of our food. So like when we're when we're looking at future product cases, we talk to we talk to these people, then we talk to people like them. To your point, right? Like the the other people that we've pitched in those verticals, etc., where we didn't where we didn't make it, right? We're constantly getting feedback on like okay, like when after uh, when we lose a deal, it's like okay, well what what was it, right? Like you know, what did we lack or what was missing? Or what, what did you feel was not up to scratch? Because, you know, we're in a competitive environment. Um, yeah. And, and that, that heavily drives our product process. Because, um, yeah, you know, it'd be hypocritical if I was running a user feedback company and I didn't take any user feedback. Um, and, go, and going back to your, your last question about how do you know this? Yeah. Questions and interviews like this aren't enough. Right. You have to physically go and get on site with people. Mm-hmm. Until you've seen them in their environment and seen, especially anything B2B or institutional, yeah. until you've seen how they work with their coworkers, until you've seen what their life looks like, what their office looks like, what the space around them looks like, until you've seen their customers suffer, yeah, you don't really understand their business. Mm-hmm. So we went on, we make something for colleges and universities that helps them understand how their computers get used. Yeah. Uh, our company. And we went on site a couple of years ago and we walk onto this campus in the pouring rain, freezing rain coming down. It's the last day of classes for the semester. And there's like a hundred students standing outside the library waiting to get at a computer. Across the street, there was like 300 empty computers working at Right. And we're like, you guys have all the data. I can pull up your, you know, our product on your campus right now and show you that you know that. And somehow it hadn't made it the last two feet to the people who were suffering the pain. And they never even thought that they had the answer. They didn't even realize our product solved that problem until we got on campus with them. That makes sense. So like, like, I, I think there's so much communication. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. There's so much communication that doesn't happen over this format. Mm-hmm. There's so much knowledge transfer that doesn't, that, that doesn't make it through. Um, and that's something I've seen over and over again in my process is you, you build a product and the product mm-hmm. solves the problem. But it doesn't matter because the customer doesn't know it solves the problem. Right. So, I, so about half my work as a product manager is on the product marketing and sales training side to make sure that as much of that value gets to customers as possible. I think that is a solid, solid nugget. I think, you know, people be like, how, how much research is enough? Like I, for, for us, it's like, uh, you know, this is something that we've been harping on for, for a while, which is like you, if you, the moment you like invite a user in for your user session and like, you know, you're calling them into your lab and you have them open their, you know, like a laptop that you've provided them and you have like all, all of like, you know, the technology of it is, is sound, but you have essentially altered base parameters, right? Like you've altered like core parameters that facilitated the use case. So like what you're going to measure is not going to be like accurate to 
what the user would actually do uh, when right. confronted with this use case in their own habitat or their own environment. And, uh, you know, that's something I, I think uh, like that, that makes that, that amount of insight, like the, the differential there really makes the difference between like building a product that's going to be super sticky and scale and like a product that's going to be like, okay, well, I, I understand what they're trying to do, but it doesn't do it for me. Right. Uh, and when we applied that knowledge, that the knowledge we learned on that one trip, and then we did a follow-up trip in the UK to about 11 customers in 14 days, mm -hmm. we got back and we applied that knowledge to our product. And the next thing we launched, 3x our average deal size. Wow. Now that's saying something. Right? That, okay. uh, that's so we that's like product process driving growth right there. Right. Like Right. And we actually, that was the product we launched was the most complicated, high risk thing we'd ever done. But because we had customers pulled in from those visits and pulled in, we retained the sales guys and the marketing people before we even yeah. got to beta. And we were pulling customers into the beta. Before mm -hmm. we left beta, we ROI'd that project. Wow. That's Through additional sales and sales growth. Before we left prop, before we left beta, we paid for the entire six month project. That's awesome. Because we were solving the customer's real problems and involving them really in saying, Hey, we know we screwed up. We know you can't use our product. We're at fault. Let us solve it. Let's work together. We really need your help. And that process immediately drove sales. Mm -hmm. Immediately started changing our deal size, immediately started changing customer satisfaction. Like it's not complicated. It's just hard to stay that humble that long. Yeah, that's true. So uh, just switching gears a little bit, right? So uh, like obviously we've we've we spoke before before this podcast, and uh, one of the things you were talking about is how now you're essentially working as a center of excellence, or or like the ability, like you know, you're working on uh, helping other companies sort of build and like construct a product process that you leave behind right like and and they're able to they're able to scale that with them so how do you when how do you train up like uh like what what are some principles you leave behind because i get it like if you are the kind of person you are and you are in the driver's seat and you're leading the charge you can instill these things yeah. but how do you make it like behavior how do you make it just like hey this is how you guys do products so even when i leave it's going to be done this way, like it's it's something that's like baked into the ethos of the organization. I think you get leadership to start asking better questions. Get leadership to expect more. I see. So right. can you can you elaborate it's on that really, a little bit more? So leadership should expect that anytime somebody goes and spends the company's money on anything, that they have an explicit mm -hmm. hypothesis. They have a narrative about what the path to dollars are. They're explicitly talking about their ROI timeframes. Like just make that part of the culture. When we spend over 5,000 bucks, like make it some super low threshold, we are going to have at least one sentence that tells us about the path to dollars on this spend. Right? How does this pay for itself? How does this drive growth? What are we testing? And you can say, you change the culture by saying, I don't care if the experiment fails. I'm not going to fire anybody or punish them for not achieving what the ROI they said. But it is not okay 
to not be making every decision an experiment. And if we if we take take that back to our, our principle that our 2080 principle, right? The 20% of the products are gonna make most of the money. 80% basically that hypothesis is not going to work out. It's going to be a failure. Is that the case? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And you make that super explicit. You say every now, time we expect mm -hmm. most of our experiments to fail. Yeah. That's okay. Mm -hmm. and, and when you're making decisions about what to build next, what features to push, what experiments and hypotheses to try, and you know this 80-20 idea that 80% that of the things are not going to be your main drivers of revenue, is, is it that every new feature that you plan, you always are aiming for that to be part of the 20%? Or do you ever try something knowing it's going to be in the 80%, but trying to achieve something else with it? So we, the question I ask is when we don't have high certainty that it's going to succeed, we say, what's the cheapest and fastest way to get to certainty, right? And so this is what I do when stakeholders come in with their pet projects. I'm like, awesome. What's your hypothesis about how many dollars this will bring in and when? What evidence do you have for that? How certain are we? Cool. What's the cheapest and fastest way to test that? And so it's just this constant process of like, let's just test it. Let's just test it. Let's just test it quickly, cheaply, right? And be like, it's cool to fail. It's nothing's a failure. I, when I got to this culture where I live now in Idaho, I realized that there was like a cultural bias towards leadership knowing everything. And it wasn't okay for leadership to say they didn't know everything. And so I was like, so I had to really install this culture of experiment. And then instead of framing it as an experiment failure, we say, hey, we did an experiment and we learned, we always learned something. Yeah. Right, because the culture was not accepting a failure. Whereas when I worked uh, in outdoor on the West Coast, failure was totally normal. Everybody I worked with was a stockbroker, a rock climber, or both. <laughs> Those groups of people are good with, they're cool with failure, right? Mm -hmm. They expect to fail more than they expect to succeed. And I got here and that wasn't the culture. And so getting into that and going, okay, let's reframe this. And so then every discussion, what I insist on doing when I'm in a product role is that I get invited to every key meeting. Um, and I sit there and I don't make a lot of comments except to be like, hey, that's awesome. What are we testing with that initiative? What's the hypothesis? What do we expect to learn? How's that connected to our key goal? And I just ask those all the time. Right. Um, I'm, I'm actually curious, right? Like, and, and this is something that I, I've contended with for a while. I can tell you for a fact, right? Like our product process was extremely primitive and like first past the post when we were building this out in our first year, because it was just about speed, right? Like it was just about getting shit out the door. And it was also just about manpower, right? Like, uh, like we were, yeah. we were, we were bootstrap startup, like, you know, we're still bootstrapped. So it was like, all right, we got, we got to go auto I ASAP. So it's just building, building product on a hunch and a prayer, like early stage right. for any startup. It's kind of how it happens. Right. Like, uh, so at, at what point do you start, implementing processes and is there is there a chance right like to play devil's advocate is there a chance that if you start pro like in introducing processes too early at like smaller organizations that actually results in like paralysis 
right? Is that uh, is that something that yeah, you've seen I think happen? I'm making the process sound my process, my max process. Mm -hmm. Like for a project that's a million bucks, I've got maybe yeah. ten pages of documentation. These are all super light. Okay. They're all like a couple of sentences on a piece of paper. It's a form with a whole bunch of simple questions and you're, you answer them in a couple of sentences. Right. With footnotes to the documentation and research you have. And you, when you're small and light, the risk is less, it's less risk. Right. This isn't, this isn't grad school. Right. Right. We don't need to convince a bunch of a bunch of people who are trying to tear us apart. We just need to mm -hmm. take the time and literally I can do the first draft on these documents in half a day. Right. For a million dollar project. Right. And then yeah. I'll come back and be like, where is the risk? And then we'll, you know, we'll fill in and then we'll be like, and this is how, you know, you need more product process. We're like, all right, if we get this wrong, what's the risk? How many dollars is that? Okay. Is it worth 1% of that many dollars to get higher certainty on this. Right. Yeah, probably. Let's go time box two days to try and get higher certainty on this. Mm -hmm. And so that's where putting every project in dollars, talking about its revenue potential, its ROI, and really explicitly putting in dollars what you think the engineering spend is going to be, mm -hmm. helps you decide how to scale the product process. When you're making huge bets, you need to do your diligence. When you're making tiny bets, diligence might be five minutes of everybody sitting around being like, we think these numbers are real. Yeah, we're pretty good. <laughs> right? And so I'm yeah. always scaling it with, with what the risk is in dollars. And that risk formula, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it, right? Risk equals cost times probability. Yep. I just use that. And then I scale <laughs> a few percent of whatever the risk number is as my investment, how many dollars yeah. of my own time are I'm, am I going to invest in researching this? Mm -hmm. So these things scale almost fractally. Right. Right. That's, that's really good. I, I think, I think as like, as like process measurement goes, I think like people are process averse, right? Like I think what, what you've done is definitely like, it's a pretty good call out because uh, some people just are afraid to get started. I think like diligence around like even even implementing a lightweight process right that makes that makes all the difference right just that uh, like and, and being consistent with it that makes all the difference uh, and you can do it you can implement process even early stage keep it lightweight and even at scale you can you can scale it up but also you know still keep it lightweight but just useful um right. product they all have multiple uses so i take my prds and they're uh -huh. written in I can hand them directly to sales and marketing as the training tool on the new feature that's launching. Right. And it contains all the data they need to develop their marketing plan and their sales plan for that feature. Right. Right. I write it once and everybody in the company gets to read it and everybody in the company finds it useful. That makes it, and that makes a huge, huge difference. Right. Cause otherwise like people build a product and then from scratch, you're spitting up a sales like you know like a sales module which is you know that has probably it's like disjointed but if you as the product leader like hey here's like its intended case like here's how here's how it scales out and sales is able to see value from that like nothing like it um, right so i was exposed to the amazon process super early where you start mm -hmm. with the with the press release. marketing yeah you start with the press release and so that's basically included in my prd 
is how are we going to sell this? Right. Right. I, and I'm getting people, you're way better with language than me. You're going to make this look pretty, but here's the pain points for the customer we're solving mm -hmm. and why, and why they would care. And that's the, you know, the very, very first thing you start with. And I, I still stick with that on everything. If you can't sell it, it's not a product. Dude. Damn. <laughs> like I might, I might get, I was thinking about tattoo ideas. So yeah. I think that's come pretty high on my list now. <laughs> like, uh, so what, what to you, would you say like looking at, because just, just like with, with anything, right. With even with product, like product thinking and how people think about product, there's like multiple different schools of thought, right? Like there's conflicting schools of thought. There's com conflicting ideas out there with significant like followership, right? Um, what, what do you is something that you think broad scale, a lot of people that something that's really popular that you feel like people are getting wrong, right? Like what's on it, what's something where you're like, damn, like there's a lot of people that are rallying around this, but I actually think it's bunk. So every product book I've read, mm -hmm. I get really frustrated and stop reading about halfway through because they, I studied history, right? Mm -hmm. And when you study history, there's a standard format. When you look at a new era, what was continuous and what changed? And I think most product books aren't, hmm, for the change, consider that every single business is different. They don't consider that the technology is constantly changing. And so they have a whole bunch of stuff in there is like universal that is totally contingent on the historical moment and the uh, finance model that they're John, in. John, I hate to interrupt, but I, I Tim, I don't know if you and are saying so, this, but it's cutting out a little bit, your audio. So I, I, could you just... Start that answer again, maybe, yeah. because it was like it cut out exactly when, sure. uh, like, yeah, yeah. like during key parts of your answer. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, from the like from the top about the books, cool. uh, that'd be great. <laughs> right. So I, I don't read most product books. I try. Mm -hmm. I get about a couple chapters in, and I realize that they have universal principles that are just historically contingent. They've mistaken historic, like their experience, which is totally valid. Their experience is totally valid, but they've assumed it's universal. Right. Um, and the only universals are people and their emotions and everything else is contingent. Right. We, right. The only thing that's always true is everybody I deal with is a person. Those people are guided by their goals and their emotions. And a successful product is the one that solves the, the needs that they feel. The stakeholders, the people giving us money, the investors, the entire set is driven by emotions and have emotions that they feel. And products solve those feelings. I started off in retail selling outdoor clothing. And somebody would come in and they'd be looking for a jacket. They weren't actually looking for a jacket. They were looking to feel secure that they were going to be comfortable. Um, or their hike across spinal thing behind it. Right. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm going to John, try. It looks like my Wi-Fi is back. Okay. 
let's uh let's try and connect but in the meantime like what like are you, are you uh, getting why, my feed uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm getting it now. the The audio is clearer. I think. I think the choppiness has gone down. Uh, but I think this idea of you know, like taking your experience and thinking of it as as universal, uh, like it's classic like inductive reasoning, right? The, the whole idea of at least at least with swans, right? The idea of a black swan was still like rare uh, enough that you had to like, go out and look at a bunch of swans and they were invariably white. And then eventually someone found a black swan. Uh, but so, right. that, you know, it, it was it, it was a largely safe assumption that like swans were white, but it wasn't a principle because someone went and found a black swan. Um, yeah, I think I think with product processes and like, you know, product strategy, uh, the the variance, like in fact, the, like the the differences between like different different product processes. So there's there's just so much variance there that to your point, right? Underpinning the constant as users, user intention, or like you know people people's intentions, people's emotions, and then working backwards from there is uh, yep. like that's the only way to do it. You have to like first principles it every time to get it right, yep. right? Every time and every time you have a new person in the mix, you right. have to go and say, okay, what does this person believe? What scares them? What are their values? Uh, when I was doing making um, commando clothing, I had this one group of customers that would never, ever buy anything. There was one particular commando unit that would never any buy anything from me. And so I sat down and buy, bought them some beers one time. And I'm like, dude, what's the deal? Do you like our stuff? Like we, I'd send them hundreds of thousands of dollars in product for testing. They'd right. worn it all over the world and they never bought. I'm like, what's the deal? They're like, oh, do you remember this incident back in the 80s, the super famous incident? Yeah. We had a bunch of our people burned in that incident. Yep. Your stuff might melt to us. Oh, okay. Right. And so this was a single institutional fear from the single incident 30 years ago that was driving their, their that had become institutionalized, that right. was driving their behavior. Right. All the people working with them on the same teams in the same environments were wearing our stuff and loving it and buying tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars per, per commando. But yeah. these guys weren't because of the single institutional fear. And so that's the level of specificity you have to get to. And then I'm like, oh, OK, so if I made this stuff and proved to you that it won't melt to you when you buy it. Yeah. So I did. And they currently are kitted out in that stuff. Right. Right. And so it's Absolutely. just getting to that. Yeah. Wow. I I mean, this is right. an, just an excellent, excellent episode. Like we're we're nearing the tail end of our time together, John. But like uh I promise you, man, I'm I'm, I'm gonna come up to Idaho and we're gonna have some beers. Uh just like I, I love I love picking your brain on this stuff. This has been, well, it's been, it's been, it's been so good from my point of view. Thanks for letting me rant. Uh, yeah. I don't get a chance as the sole like full-time product guy. I don't get a chance to uh -huh. rant on this a lot of stuff. So <laughs> it's good to get it off my chest. Yeah. That's the goal with this podcast. Find smart people who know something, bring them on and just let them talk. That's, that's the whole idea. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so Tim, do you want, do you want to, do you want to wrap, wrap us up and take us home? Sure. Yeah. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, before we go uh, and end the broadcast, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you want to let the listeners know about? Anything 
they should check out that you're working on right now? I, I just love to talk to people about this stuff. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm only John Falusco. Uh, you can reach me at john at falusco.com and uh, get me there. And I love to chat, help people out. I love being exposed to new problems. I love being exposed to new environments and helping people figure stuff out. So if I can be of help to anybody, let me know. Sounds great. Yeah. You've to been, all our listeners. Uh, to us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, me and Riddhav, I'm sure both learned a lot from this conversation alone. And I, I know our listeners have too. Uh, to those who are listening in right now, uh, we'll be live again next week. Same time, same place. And I hope you'll see us then. John, thanks so much. Have a great weekend and uh, talk to you again soon, I hope. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.